You have resolved 2.1, a Netrunner Reboot Project podcast. Episode 15, Try to Close It. Hey, this is Remy. The title card for this week's episode is Pop-Up Window. This is an NBN code gate that, you know what, what are the chances you need me to tell you what Pop-Up Window does? The flavor text on it, though, says, try to close it. Go on. See what it does. And that's from Chaos Theory. I will go through what it does later in the episode as we explore the corp cards from Cyber Exodus, the third data pack in the Genesis cycle. Uh, Going to spend a good chunk of the episode talking about that, a couple of new corp economy options. Uh, before we get to that, part three on ice placement will be coming up. But let's start off with some breaking news. Breaking news. Reboot Worlds. Now, I have previously mentioned at the time of the announcement that there was going to be a Worlds tournament for Reboot. Now we have some details. The date has been set for Saturday, August 12th. That is this coming Saturday, if you are listening to this at or near the time it's being released. Starting around 10 a.m. Eastern Time, or New York Time. The reason for that is to try to catch as many people as possible on both sides of the Atlantic. There's a large European contingent uh, playing Reboot. Uh, you can sign up for it by going to the Reboot Project Discord server and following a link there in the Reboot Worlds channel. Deck lists are supposed to be submitted 24 hours before the event starts, so that means the deadline is really Friday, August 11th, at around 10 Eastern. Anonymous tip, account siphon. A few weeks ago, in one of the conversation channels on the Discord server, the big boy made this comment, siphon, desperado, parasite, SMC, caprice, and 3-2 agendas are the most important things in Netrunner. Uh, four of those things exist in the 2.1 card pool currently. SMC, that is self-modifying code, doesn't come along until the first deluxe expansion, Creation and Control. Caprice Nisei is toward the end of the second cycle. But we're going to talk here about Account Siphon, a powerful criminal run event from the core set, that can be really frustrating if you forget it. It is, however, crucial. It is a key card for criminals to run. So let's talk about how you deal with it as the corp. I'm going to be quoting some of the comments from the more professional, eh, not professional, yeah, I mean, not being paid, but the higher caliber players that we have in the Discord server. Starting with Cleric, 
That's a cleric spelled two K's, K-L-E-R-I-K. Uh, he is behind the a lot of the uh, programming for the websites for Reboot. Here's what he had to say. A couple of pointers for avoiding and mitigating siphon. Consider not rezzing the HQ ice if they just run without playing siphon. If you do res it, consider the possibility that they bounce off it, the next turn go special order, install breaker, siphon, and be prepared to deal with it. Think about how much money you'll have left over if you do res the HQ ice. If you can have fewer than five credits left, they get less money. Think about both the above before you actually place the ice on HQ and they play siphon. If you have assets or upgrades, you can place those elsewhere and res them to drain money from yourself again, mitigating the payout they get. Placing another ice on HQ a little earlier than you think is needed can be good to give you more flexibility. For example, permitting you to res one ice to deny the Gabe credits while still leaving an unresed ice to spend money on and to keep them guessing. Be careful about trying to score in the remote early against criminals. You want a buffer of five credits so you're not unable to res the remote ice if you do, if they do play siphon. The big boy made a comment that San San City Grid is one of the best counters to siphon, and Gaminet responded by saying, Ah, the old ways. Play San Sands and shipment from San Sands. They siphon you. You res San San behind an ice. Next turn install. Shipment. Score agendas at zero. And the big boy also said, you want to think about stuff like, I have 14 credits. I have two Eli's on HQ and a San San City Grid in this remote. If they siphon me now, then I can res everything and go down to two. If they don't, I can score with San San City Grid and then have six left to res both if they siphon next turn. All right, so let me unpack that part a little bit. Eli, as a reminder, is a card that we haven't seen yet. It comes in the sixth pack. Uh, Well, he'll actually have a guest appearance. I had a guest appearance on last week's uh, flavor segment, the um, Astroskip pilot program segment. But it's a three-cost, four-strength barrier. Really good taxing bioroid. So two Eli's means six. San San City Grid costs six, so there's 12. So he's saying, I have 14 credits and these three cards unresed. When they come to do a count siphon, I can res all three of these cards and only have to and go down to just two credits left. And then they only get four credits. They only wipe you out for two and you've got these powerful things rezzed. Meanwhile, if you have 14 credits and they don't do a count siphon, then you res the San San City Grid, right? So now you're down to eight. And then you can score something with it. And so now you're down to six, right? We're talking about a three, two agenda. So it only costs you two to score it. So now you have six credits left. Then they come to bring the account siphon next turn. You can still res both Eli's. See, so putting yourself in situations where you can 
have the flexibility to do different things, that's sort of a next level strategy, right? You're being much more strategic in the way that you are placing and resing your cards. Archived Memories More about ice placement. Part one of this series, we looked at a blog post from the Satellite Uplink from David Sutcliffe, where he examined the different types of ice and grouped them according to whether they are binary or analog and whether they end the run or are taxing. In part two, last week, we looked at a blog post from Run the Net, the big boys blog, where we we saw some more details about how many ice you want in your deck and learning about where you want to place ice. Now we're going to take a look at a couple of Reddit threads from 2016, so a little bit more recent than the Big Boys blog post, that have some more specifics about where to put some of these different pieces of ice. Starting with the first one, and the name of this thread was, Is There an Ice Placement Guide or a Resource? First, the user Isva, I-S-V-A, some pointers. Icing HQ. You often want a binary piece of ice on HQ to protect against siphon. If the two ice on HQ are, say, a resed enigma and a wall of static, the runner knows whether they can get in. If it's a resed enigma and an unknown ice, they may well not siphon you till they can safely hit whatever you res. You can sometimes leave HQ relatively unprotected, especially against shapers, since they aren't likely to focus on it. This depends a lot on how worried you are about agenda flood, that is, having a bunch of agendas in your hand. If you have a relatively safe scoring server, you can often ship any agendas you draw straight out again without worrying about protecting HQ. Icing R&D Runners will often want to run R&D multiple times. It's less essential to have hard, binary, end-the-run ice on R&D because a single access is unlikely to be an issue. But you want to stop the runner from getting in multiple times. That means taxing ice, particularly things which can't be quickly negated by the runner's tools. Multiple subroutines, high strength. Bioroids are great here. You'll usually want at least two ice on R&D by mid-game. Basically, the server needs to cost the runner three-plus credits ASAP and six-plus credits by late-game. Try not to let the runner invalidate all your ice with Parasite, Femfetal, Yog, Efficient Breakers, and so on. That means ice like Toll booth. He mentions also architect and another one that we haven't seen, and so on. Icing archives. Archives gets iced mostly in Jinteki, uh, one of the identities we haven't seen yet. But the other one is replicating perfection, where you have to run a central before you can run a remote. He gives two good suggestions cards that don't exist yet in the current card pool and won't be coming along for several cycles. 
I'd also look into icing up against criminal, because of sneak door beta, and noise. Usually against criminals, I'd look at something a little taxing, enough to make sneak dooring for a card or two not a great trade. And against noise, I'd put down maybe an AI hate piece, since if he can't break it with Faust, it will take him a while. Well, again, Faust is not coming along for some time, so maybe that piece of information is a little less necessary. Icing small remotes. Usually when you're protecting assets, you want something that makes the stuff a bit more annoying to trash. It doesn't have to stop the runner, but if you have, say, a pop-up window in front of your spare server, it basically increases the credit swing whenever the runner trashes your thing by two. That's pretty good value. Do note that some runners won't bother trashing your stuff too much, and you can sometimes leave stuff undefended. You can also decline to ice stuff to bait the runner into spending a lot of money to open a scoring window. Good options here are basically anything which costs less than five credits. And multiple ice are mentioned here. The only one we have yet at this point is pop-up window. And then he says a lot of runners won't bother trying to trash an EVE campaign if it has an unrest ice in front of it. Eve campaign at least is coming up in the next pack, so that'll be something useful. It's like a more potent Adonis campaign. Icing scoring remotes. This depends a lot on the deck. If you're trying to rush, you need stuff that stops the runner's initial checks, gear checks, and so on. So here we're talking about something that's a binary end-the-run ice. If the runner has a rig, you need to make things expensive, then make the runner run down it as many times as you can while denying them as many accesses as possible. If you have a defensive upgrade, like Ash, you can happily put a load of taxing stuff on the server, but otherwise you'll need some and the run eyes or things aren't going to keep people out much. Tollbooth is great here, as are, you know, a couple of other big things that we don't currently have in the pool. This is the, ch this is the challenge which, with uh, pulling an article from 2016 when the Picard pool we have only goes through early 2013. Uh, you have more, you have better insights, but also references to other I, uh, cards we don't have yet. The second Reddit thread, and again, I'll provide links for both of these in the show notes is Ice Placement and Strategy from May of 2016. The first one was from February. Stonar says this, Think about what purpose ice on a server serves. How many times will a runner run on a remote server? How many times will they run on a central? How long do you need to keep them out for? For centrals, you usually want to make it expensive. Make them think twice about account siphoning. Porous but costly ice, again here we're talking means taxing ice, works really well on centrals. Uh, he mentions a bunch of cards we don't have in the card pool. The runner has to either take a penalty by running through, losing clicks and money, or accelerating your game plan, or break it, costing a bunch of resources. 
You'll never keep a runner out of your centrals forever, so you want to force the runner to do it as rarely as they can. On a remote, however, you usually just want to keep them out, and often you only need to keep them out for one turn. If you have Caprice on a server, again, remember what Big Boy said about the Big Boy said about Caprice being uh, one of the key cards. And again, we don't have it. So let's say Ash. So if you have Ash on a server and enough money, you might just need Tollbooth. It ends the run in two different ways. If they have low money, and it's a five-strength code gate with a subroutine. And if they need to break it, it's expensive, and they might not be able to come back in a second time. So often that's what you want on your remote. Keep them out long enough. Early, ice like Enigma and the like do the job here. And late, things like Tollbooth tend to do the trick. Of course, all of this depends on your matchup and your deck and will vary from game to game, but that's kind of the gist of it. Blank text box replies with, the key to this is that costly, porous ice creates a cost to get in without actually stopping the runner from doing so, and now they have to ask what it's worth to them to get access. For an agenda, in other words, in a scoring remote, it's worth a very great deal. For a random card in R&D, it's probably not. Flaming Tumino Head says, it depends on the matchup and a lot of variables, but for basics, R&D is the default base to look for agendas. And on average, runners will run there most often. So you want something that is taxing, like Eli 1.0, or just something that discourages pot shots, like pop-up window. Remotes, on the other hand, tend to be the target only when you're trying to score agendas, so you'll be more interested in something that the runner can't handle at that point. Eli 1.0 might be a bad choice because it can be clicked through. Craig Brackens says, Early on, hard end the runs are the best for protecting your scoring remote so that you can safely score an agenda before they have their breakers online. This is the second phase in the game that we discussed several weeks ago. Central servers are the place that runners are going to run the most often for multi-access, such as with the brand new Nerve Agent or with the Maker's Eye in Shaper or Anarch's Medium. So you want taxing ice there, ice with multiple annoying subroutines. The point isn't to keep them out entirely, it's to waste their credits so that running there is expensive and difficult to do multiple times a turn. One caveat is that against criminal, you really want an early end the run ice over HQ. They almost all run account siphon and will gladly pay a tax, even a hefty one, to land the siphon. And the final comment here is from Neutronicus. Consider the noise matchup. You want tough mid-range ice to protect HQ early. He says from Lamprey. Uh, so maybe from Nerve Agent? About the same, I know. But He offers Caduceus as a good example of this that's somewhat resilient to being parasited right away. Cheap, annoying ice to deny data sucker and free accesses on R&D, like pop-up window. Cheap, annoying eyes to deter speculative runs and data sucker farming on archives, again, including pop-up window. 
a difficult ice for your remote. Again, here is mentioned Faust, which was a problem at the time. But again, here, Tollbooth is, Tollbooth is mentioned as being good for the remote. And basically, whatever you have available to fight medium late. But often you want to force him to commit to installing it before you commit to icing. So in other words, take the hit early, and then uh, once they have a something installed, then you put in something stronger. That is part three of the ice placement series. A little bit more specifics about uh, where you put the kinds of ice you put. So now we really kind of need to get into what ice is what kind, right? Like, see, like when I look at the name of a piece of ice, I want to be able to see what category it fits into. I think people that are thinking this way will look at the name Eli 1.0 and they'll think taxing ice. Whereas I tend to look at Eli and say, oh, barrier. But it's not really a hard barrier because you can click through it. So I want to be able to sort these different types of ice into the different buckets that we've been discussing. And I hope to get into that a little bit more next week. Satellite uplink. Let's get into Cyber Exodus on the Corp side. Reboot has made changes for only four of the Corp cards. And once again, as was true last week, they're all buffs. No nerfs in this set. So the buffs are for first, Jinteki, Edge of World, an asset with a res cost of zero and a trash cost now of two instead of zero. If it's installed and you pay three credits when it's being accessed, each piece of ice on the server will do a brain damage. For Wayland, Woodcutter, a sentry, his res cost has been changed from four to zero, is strength two, and it's advanceable, although you can only advance, advance it while it's resed. And for each advancement that you do, it has a subroutine that says one, do one net damage. It does not start with any subroutines. And both neutral cards have been buffed. Private contracts, an asset with a res cost now of two, instead of three, a trash cost of five, you place 14 credits on it when you res it, and for a click, you can take two credits. And then Chimera, a mythic ice, with a res cost of two and a strength changed its from zero to one. When you res it, you choose Sentry Codegator Barrier. It gains that subtype, has one end of the run subroutine, and when your turn, the turn ends, you de-res the ice. The six cards that are unchanged are both Haas Bioroid cards, Project Vitruvius, a 3-2 research agenda, but you can over-advance to get agenda counters, one counter per over-advancement, and an agenda counter will let you take one card from archives to HQ. Also Viper, a code gate with a res cost of three and a strength of four, two subroutines, trace three, runner loses the cl a click, and trace three to end the run. Jinteki's other card, Sunset, an operation that costs zero, lets you rearrange the ice in a server. NBN, both of their cards are not changed. Marked accounts, an asset with a cost of zero and a trash cost of five, 
When your turn begins, you can take a credit if there's any credits on it. And for a click, you can place three credits. And pop-up window, which has been mentioned multiple times. A code gate with a cost of zero, a strength of zero, one influence, so it can go anywhere. When the runner encounters pop-up window, you, the corp, gain one credit. And the subroutine says end the run unless the runner pays one credit. And finally, the Wayland card commercialization, a transaction operation with a cost of zero that lets you gain one credit per advancement token on a particular piece of ice. Matrix Analyzer. Let's take a look at some of these changes and how they impact us. Chimera is an easy one. It was already a decent card, especially early in the game. I mean, two credits, it's an investment. It doesn't stick around. You have to keep paying two credits, but you can always make it be the ice you need it to be so that it's a great gear check that forces the runner to basically get every card, every breaker out. Uh, but it immediately would die to Parasite at strength zero. So with the strength boost of one, at least it survives until it is derezzed. I don't know if that's you, how useful that is, but it's true. And let me talk a bit about Woodcutter. This is a set of cards that Wayland is going to be having where you can advance them for additional subroutines. They don't start with any. And they're very... Not good. So apparently Fantasy Flight thought that advancing things was stronger than it is. In one of the previews, um, I should link these in the show notes too, I guess. I always put them up uh, in the different places on, on Discord and uh, Board Game Geek. And I think I put it up on Stimhack. Maybe not. Anyway, I link to the articles about when, before previews and release at the time. And one of those previews, Lucas Litzinger, the lead designer on Netrunner, made this comment about Woodcutter. Woodcutter fits best in a deck that bets on winning the late game. Even though it doesn't end a run, the more the corp advances it, the more lethal it becomes. And the clicks and credits you spend to advance it are a deterrent against runs on the server your Woodcutter defends. He describes it well. It's a taxing piece of ice. And... The taxes, the subroutines you can give it all say do a net damage. And so it's strength two. And if you put lots of effort into it, it, it does become a significant tax. But um, if the runner has mimic, it's a sentry. So if the runner has mimic, and so let's, and let's assume they do because that's the best killer. You have to give it three subroutines before it becomes potentially an analog taxing card. And four is better, based on David Cycliffe's rule of thumb. That three can be taxing, four is taxing. So, originally, you would spend four to res this ice, which does nothing until you res it. So, the runner has to run the server, and you have to pay four to res the ice, and it does nothing. And that's a lot. And then... Four clicks and four more credits to give it those four subroutines to make it a taxing eye. So now we've spent five clicks on it, including the install, and eight credits 
assuming it's in the bottom position, to get that tax. That is a lot. I mean, sure, there's tricks to put extra advancements on it, like shipment from Kaguya and trick of light to move things around, but still, it's a lot of work. Even at cost zero, you're still paying four clicks and four credits to get those four subroutines, and so it's still probably not worth playing much. Now, when I posted the release article in the 2.1 channel on Discord, uh, Goblin Mode first commented on this woodcutter thing. It was also the thing that he picked up on. And Aowashi said, The early advancement ice and support makes you wonder what kind of game they were playing in development. Huggin Ronan responded with one where you could actually advance woodcutter face down. And the big boy replied to that with, Yes, they, that is woodcutter and its upcoming brethren, were tested like this and got nerfed last minute. Huggin Ronan said, Overly careful seems to be the game with early FFG. And Muryu said, And for the better, evidently. This is a key concept in Reboot, that Fantasy Flight erred on the side of caution early, early on, but not later in the game's run. That early caution made a number of cards weaker than they had to be. But the advantage was that the game remained healthy. But the later lack of caution made a number of cards stronger than they should have been, and so you had a negative impact on the health of the game. And so that's why Reboot has come along and boosted the strength of some of these early cards and more or less lopped off the later cycles. So then I asked whether the Reboot project had considered bumping the strength instead to get it out of mimic range. You know, if it was strength four, well, even one subroutine could be useful. And the big boy replied with, I think the buff I did is the best you can do buffing one number. So he thinks differently that it's, that it's better to have buffed the res cost. And so that reminded me of one of the governing principles of Reboot, which is that when adjustments are made, as much as possible, they try to adjust just a number on a card. So in this case, and, and there are rare exceptions. Um, and then the ones where they actually have to change the text are extremely rare. So in this case, that means you either change the cost or you change the strength. Not both. And the big boy's feeling is that lowering the cost was more effective than increasing the strength. Cleric, who I mentioned earlier was a, as a key member of the Reboot crew, name-checked Woodcutter along with some other early bad ice and said... If you're trying to salvage these bad ice, it's fairly close to just designing new cards. For what it's worth, I think making an entirely new ice out of some dead card isn't necessarily a bad idea. It's just opening the door to a lot. And then somebody asked a question about one of the very, very few cards that did get an adjustment to two numbers, technically. Uh, the big boy said, that card is fun, and advanceable ice is actually not though he carved out exceptions for some of the advanceable ice in the third deluxe expansion and even ice wall, when you just advance them in fringe situations and then feel smart. As for advanceable ice not being fun, he says, it's just really slow and leads to really long, boring games if it's good. And you'd have to buff it a lot to make it good because it's expensive to do. 
it's expensive to uh, advance it. So the upshot is basically strong advanceable ice requires lots of credits to break, which slows the runner down, but isn't actually speeding the corp up, right? We talked about tempo. So you're, the corp is paying money and time to make the runner basically pay money and time. So it just makes the game last longer. I think Aowashi put a nice cap on the discussion with this comment. A lot of cards would need like a top to bottom redesign. I guess the idea right now is that if you really want to play them in spite of everything, at least it's better than it was back when FFG printed them. Data Sucker. Corp Economy Options. We got two new corp cards to get you money, which are pretty hard to come by in this pack. And so let's compare them to some of the other options we already have. We have private contracts, which is neutral, and marked accounts, which is NBN, but only has one influence. So private contracts is basically like a corp version of Armitage. Um, Armitage is, you put 16 credits on it, and then you take two credits off it. Private contracts, you put 14 credits on it, and you take two credits off it. Of course, it's an asset, a corp asset, so it has a trash cost, but the trash cost of five is significant. Now, notice that there's a contrast here with the campaigns, pad campaign, Adonis campaign. You have to spend a click to get the credits off of it. So a good comparison maybe is to Melange Mining Corp, because that's another one where you have to click to install it, pay to res it, and then spend clicks to get the money. In the case of private contracts, it's two to res. You can, it has a cap of 14 credits, but you get it by spending seven clicks whenever you want. Whereas, but it means it sits out there for a while. Whereas melange is only one to res, and then you have to spend your entire turn to gain seven credits, but you can kind of do it forever, but as a trash cost of one. So how do these cards compare to each other? They, they're both spending clicks to get money. Well, let's imagine a first turn where you install the card. In both cases, you want to res it at the beginning of, your, at the, beginning of the next turn or sometime on the next turn when you actually want to use it. So for that install, you could have just clicked for a credit. So in both cases, you're already down one. On turn two, uh, let's say you res it in both cases, and then you click it three times, right? So if you had just clicked for credits, now you'd have four. In the case of private contracts, you have three because you've spent two credits to uh, res it, and you've clicked it three times and gotten six back. But of course, you also spent a click to install it, and so now you have netted three credits. Whereas with Melange, uh, you had that same click to install, only spent one to res it, and you get seven back for spent for clicking three times. So you've netted five. So after one full turn of clicking these cards, you could have three net credits with private contracts, four just by clicking, and five with Melange. Well, what if we do that for a second turn? Well, now is when private contracts pulls ahead of 
your clicking action. If you install and spend two turns just clicking, you could have seven credits. But private contracts doing the same thing will give you nine. Meanwhile, melange doing the same thing, you're up to 12. And then when we get to turn four and there's only one click left, uh, private contracts has, has finally paid out 11, and your basic is just paying out eight. So melange can get you more money faster. But because its trash cost is only one, it is far more likely to be trashed. While if, in, in the case of private contracts, with a trash cost of five, it's much more unlikely, I would think. Now, people may still do it, but now you've cost the runner five credits. So that's a bigger swing. You know, imagine a turn, a situation where you have, uh, on your second turn, you've clicked three times. Remember we said that private contracts, you only netted three. Melange, you netted five. Well, what if the runner comes in on the next turn before you can click it again and trashes it? Well, now, if you count that trash cost of one as a net gain for you, you've netted six with melange, but eight with private contracts. So you see, they don't do exactly the same thing. They get you money in slightly different ways. And even though on the first few clicks, private contracts does not pay out as well as the basic action, there is an advantage in the flexibility. If the runner isn't going to trash it, having the flexibility to hit that for two credits multiple times, rather than you know what we talked about was just clicking for credits, there's a tempo consideration as well, a reason why private contracts is a little better, I think, than the basic action. All right, how about marked accounts? So this one we are going to compare to Adana's campaign and pad campaign, because in both, in all three cases, you install the card, and then when you res it, it gives you a credit at the beginning of your turn, or I guess in Adana's case, it gives you three credits. Um, in the case of pad, it goes on forever, right? One credit forever. Yeah, you res it for two. You gain one credit at the start of your turn forever, and it costs four for the runner to trash it. Adonis campaign, it costs you four to res. You gained three credits at the beginning of your turn, but it runs out after four turns, and its trash, co its trash cost is lower at only three. Whereas with marked accounts, it's actually zero to res. You gain one credit after you've loaded it, but its trash cost is five. So how do these compare? Well, apply the, again, the one click is one credit rule. And in Adana's case, you're going to spend five clicks and credits. That's one to install, four to res. Five, you're going to gain 12 over the course of four turns. So your net gain over four turns is seven credits. In the case of pad campaign, you will spend three clicks and credits. It's one to install, two to res. You're going to gain, over the course of those same four turns, where Adonis gives you seven, in those same four turns, pad campaign only is going to give you one, a net of one. Four credits, you've spent three, though. The net is one. So to get to the point where you have netted as much with pad campaign as you did with Adonis campaign, it's going to take you ten turns. 
On the other hand, if the runner is going to let you let run pad campaign for 10 turns, it's going to run for the rest of the game, probably. So you're going to just continue to edge ahead. Now, marked accounts, you have to spend two clicks and credits because there's the click to install, no cost to res, but a click to load. And you're probably going to want to do both of those clicks on the preceding turn before you can start to gain it. And then you can gain three clicks, or three credits rather, over three turns for your net of one. So it pays out the same as pad campaign in just three turns. But then now it's run out. So you have to spend another click. So over four turns, it has also paid out the same as pad campaign. But by the time you get to six turns, you've netted three. Then you have to spend another click. After nine turns, you're at a net of five. And then you have to spend another click. So after 12 turns, you're finally at the net of seven that Adonis campaign gives you in just four. So what are the differences? Why would you do marked accounts if it takes so much longer? Well, for one thing, Adonis campaign is much less to trash. Three compared to marked accounts, five. That is significant. It may be that the runner looks at how slow you're getting the money and is like, I don't care. It's just one credit per turn. It's also slower than pad campaign. Uh, but again, the differences are the trash cost is higher. Five versus four is not nothing. And it doesn't cost you anything to res marked accounts. So that doesn't put you behind the eight ball. You start to get ahead a little quicker. Uh, on the downside, with marked accounts, you clearly have to telegraph your play. So there's a point where you've invested two clicks in it and haven't gotten any money off of it. If the runner is going to trash it, that's the time to trash it. But then again, you're costing them five credits. So once again, I just it's really interesting to me to see the way that these different economy options sort of approach the problem in different ways. No, no one is so clearly better than another. Uh, they're all good in different ways. I wanted to bring in a comment from somebody on Reddit when I did a search for like, why would you run marked accounts over pad campaign? And this is from user Grimwalker. In NBN, almost all assets can serve the role of ambush, runner loses X credits, where X is the trash cost of the card. You're looking at this card in the context of playing Netrunner, but that's not the game. The game is winning the current game of Netrunner. They're slightly different. Marked accounts is a tempo play. It's a very light investment for the corp, spread out across several turns. In exchange, the runner has to deal with it with a tempo hit that is highly compressed. In an ideal world, the runner would run on it unresed, hopefully passing a piece or two of taxing ice, find a five-credit trash cost, and not want to pay the out-of-pocket cost, throwing good money after bad. You haven't even finished spending your modest tempo on it, so the exchange is even more one-sided. And if they spend more tempo, more money to go back in later to trash it to shut off your drip, all the better. 
the purpose of this is not to make money. It's to put the runner in the position of what to do with their money. Because for most NBN decks, that is the ballgame. Making the runner poor so that they can't beat your traces and can't clear tags. Mandatory Upgrades Project Vitruvius As I quoted the big boy saying at the top of the episode, 3-2 agendas are one of the most important things in Netrunner. Now, Hasbiroid already has accelerated beta test from the core set. But now, with Project Vitruvius, they have two sets of 3-2 agendas. So, that's great. Now you're up to six. You're that much closer to being able to run a suite of just 10 agendas, which is one of the ideal uh, configurations that you can get. Uh, Wayland, of course, also has two three twos at this point in Reboot, because post ba- Posted Bounty in Reboot is a 3-2. Project Atlas, another over-advanceable agenda, uh, which we previously covered on a mandatory upgrade. Now, these early agendas that say Project in the name Project Vitruvius, Project Atlas, and for NBN, the upcoming Project Beal, and Brain Trust for Jinteki. It should have also it should have been Project Brain Trust. Give you a, some benefit for over advancing the card. In the case of Project Vitruvius, it's pulling a card from archives to HQ. So basically, it's an archive memories. If you score it as a four two, but since it's an agenda counter, and that means it can be used at instant speed in a paid ability window, one powerful use of it is to pull an agenda out of archives during a run on the server. Right? So imagine that you've had to discard an agenda for some reason. Maybe your accelerated beta test hit badly, but you have this counter. So when the runner runs archives, you just yank it directly and back into your HQ. This ability is so powerful that when it finally gets printed on a card, which is Jackson Howard, the seventh pack that comes out, basically that card becomes an auto-include, like a hedge fund. Like you start off with three hedge fund and three Jackson Howard. Because being able, that's the biggest weakness for the corp, is having their agendas sitting in archives. This gets it out. And that's why. It's a mandatory upgrade. And because it's a 3-2. So sometimes you just want to do the, you know, score two points real quick. Enigma. Project Vitruvius. So I just wanted to talk about some of the flavor behind it. So it's not, it's not in-game flavor so much. But, like, where did the name Vitruvius come from? Well, Vitruvius was an influential Roman architect whose life overlapped that of Julius Caesar. So we're talking someone who lived a couple thousand years ago. Leonardo da Vinci, who lived in the 15th century, uh, made a drawing, and you've seen it before. It's, it's a, a circle around a naked man And he's got his arms in two configurations, uh, one straight out and one sort of up above his head. 
and his legs in two configurations, one straight down and one with them slightly spread apart. And this is known as Vitruvian Man, named he named it for Vitruvius. Uh, it's supposed to present the ideal proportions of the human form. And in the artwork for Project Vitruvius, you can see a version of this drawing. Uh, look on the right side on one of the displays. They've got Project Vitruvius up there. I mean, Vitruvian Man up there. So it fits in with the theme of Haas Bayreuth wanting to make, you know, the perfect artificial person. How it fits with the idea of pulling a card out of archives? I'm not sure of the flavor connection there. If you have some ideas, please reach out to me in any of the normal ways. The Maker's Eye, Emilio Rodriguez. Just going to wedge this one more little segment in. Project Vitruvius, again, it's the second art that Emilio Rodriguez has provided for Netrunner. He also did the art for Project Atlas. In the reboot card pool, there are 35 total cards that he did. And most of them are not these smaller scenes, but they are like sprawling environmental tableaus like like uh like you might see if you're flying in on an airplane into an area one of my favorites is the alt art full bleed melange mining corp uh like i mean you can see it there on the moon looks stark uh, by the time you get to the uh end of the reboot pool at, he's mostly just doing corp identities so if you think of a lot of the futuristic looking buildings or sprawling campuses of certain corporations. A lot of that stuff is Emilio Rodriguez. I'm going to provide uh, links to his stuff in the show notes from this art stations, Instagram, his in-print gallery. I really, I really like the art that he provides for the game. Well, many of the cards discussed in this week's episode are linked in the show notes along with those links. Music is provided by Alexi Action. The website is netrunner2.1.com. If you want to play in the Reboot Project, go to reteki.fun. If you want to really be able to find games easily, and especially if you want to play in the Reboot Worlds, please go to the Reboot Discord server. You can contact me in many locations. Discord is probably the best, but you can also get a hold of me on BoardGameGeek or Reddit or Stim Stimhack or send me an email if you'd like. Coming up in the AstroScript pilot program is not something about Haas Bioroid. We've covered HB quite a bit. So we're going to get into a couple of articles about NBN. One is entitled, The World is Yours. And the other one is called, not making news, but called The Network. Thanks for listening. See you next week. The world is yours. NBN puts the world at your fingertips, no matter whether you're looking for the best deals on your favorite brands, breaking news from around the worlds, the latest Sensi Star gossip, or the limitless content on the network. 
NBN looks very similar to its predecessor megacorp, Vertex, having slowly but steadily re-merged with or acquired its competitors and cousin companies under President of the Board Keith Randolph Kane. Over the years, the corp has been known as the Network Broadcast News, Net Broadcast Network, or Near Earth Broadcast Network, but the megacorp is now simply called NBN. The company was long headquartered in the Los Angeles district of San San, but after the construction of the beanstalk, NBN quickly relocated to New Angeles to establish itself as the sole net provider for the beanstalk and the megacity at large. NBN's new headquarters in the Rutherford district, with its endless media feeds scrolling across jumbo vert displays and a continuous stream of tourists, has become known as Broadcast Square and is considered the beating heart of New Angeles itself. More than half of the top-rated content streams across the Earth, Moon, and Mars are produced by NBN. The Media Megacorp produces the best in 3D and SimSensi entertainment, with studios like Harpsichord producing critically acclaimed reality programming and blockbuster filmies year after year, Old Hollywood continues to serve as the epicenter of the film industry. Even the venerable news rag company The New Angeles Soul was recently added to NBN's massive news media portfolio. Despite her nominal status as an independent journalist, The Soul's Lily Lockwell is the voice and face of NBN for its subscribers. Strong AI allows NBN to custom-tailor its news for the viewer, translating in real-time and micro-targeting content to pertain directly to its users' lives. NBN's unsurpassed marketing know-how and targeted psychographic algorithms help consumers make the choices they need to streamline their lives and get the most for their credits. The Megacorp's own Spark Agency is an advertising giant that handles huge media campaigns for Yucabean, Armitage, Blue Sun, Harmony MedTech, and many other corporations, large and small. Spark is the master of image, the maven of the glam and glitz of the world of promotion, and the success or failure of lesser corporations has ridden on the effectiveness of its marketing campaigns. Even the moon has become a massive advertising platform, reaching billions from halfway around the globe. Sync, another NBN subsidiary, is synonymous with the network itself, having created the secure, universal gateway protocols used by almost every device on the planet to communicate with the network, from pads, to products, to infrastructure, and beyond. Its satellite networks are the largest in the world and are supplemented with millions of miles of fiber-optic cable to grant customers access to the ease and convenience of modern life. Some critics claim NBN collects and uses the massive amounts of data at its disposal to spy on its customers, and even sells personal information and activity to repressive regimes. 
but most people would never trade the customization and personalization of media content and productivity applications only possible thanks to Sync's ubiquity and NBN's analytics. Under the savvy leadership of model-turned-media-mogul and CEO Victoria Jenkins, NBN uses its extensive market knowledge to forecast into the future, and the prospects are bright for the multimedia empire. The mega-hit multimedia universe Sunshine Junction is pioneering the future of edutainment and youth programming. Its lovable characters can be found in most New Angelino homes. Millions of children log into its servers every day to interact with and learn from their favorite members of the Champions of the Challenge Zone cast in their virtual world. From the frontiers of space to the edges of the network, NBN is dedicated to serving all of your information needs. The Network The network permeates every facet of daily life, connecting people to the things around them and to each other in a grand symphony of instantaneous data and analysis. Thanks to the machine-to-machine communication technologies implemented and safeguarded by SYNC, megacities like New Angeles are networked together to coordinate transportation, sanitation, utilities, and more. Municipalities and businesses alike use weak and strong AI to interpret massive data sets and help them best reach and service their citizens and customers. At the consumer level, individuals rely on their personal access devices, pads, to get the latest information on their health and habits or to keep up with their friends and favorite celebrities around the world. They depend on their pads to wake them up on time in the morning, and they fall asleep watching the endless media feeds and content streams supplied by NBN. Thanks to the solar system-wide reach of network, life has never been easier, more convenient, more customizable, or more efficient. Despite the usefulness of the near-infinite amount of information collected and dispersed by NBN and its subsids, neo-Luddites, disenfrancistos, and off-gridders eschew this connected life. Escaping the reach of the network is close to impossible, however, and privacy advocates warn that users have already handed over a complete picture of their personal lives to be used and exploited by the megacorps and repressive regimes. The corps that control the network have used the data streams of information on every person and everything to generate massive revenues, and they funnel very little of their profits to the masses who live outside of their pristine and immaculate world. The lure of taking a slice of the corpse's massive economic pie, or the desire to fight back against the mass surveillance and economic inequality has pushed some, known as runners, to take matters into their own hands. Runners are considered rebels at best, 
and terrorists at worst. These technology aficionados abuse and exploit brain-machine interface technology to access and override secured parts of the network while in a fully immersed state. They drive an illicit economy of their own, hidden far beneath what is visible to the average user. Whether they are ruthless criminals or sociopathic antiheroes, these virtual desperados embrace a paradigm that harkens back to the freewheeling times before the creation of the network. Sync would have its subscribers believe that the network is the only one of its kind, safe and secure from outside threats. But another network exists beyond its purview. Known as the Shadow Net, this hidden system serves as a meeting place for individuals and groups seeking to undermine the laws that govern data and intellectual property. While part of the Shadow Net is hidden deep beneath the infrastructure of the network itself, a large portion is temporary, ad hoc, and ever-changing. Peer-to-peer networks encompass some of the shadow net too, their signals coming and going as their owners please. Such freedom comes with a cost. Although the megacorps know that the shadow net exists, they're never entirely sure where it is or how it can be accessed. Its access points are constantly discovered, but these vanish as quickly as they appear. Great efforts are taken to hide them from corporate eyes. Even if it were to be destroyed, a nearly impossible feat given how compartmentalized it is, the shadow net would only be reborn anew. Information, relationships, excitement, senses, products, property, games, technology. NBN provides all this and more. NBN is your trusted source for whatever you need. Making your life better is our goal.